The following podcast is sponsored by Financial Sense Wealth Management. To learn more about our investment services, go to financialsense.com or give us a call at 888-486-3939. U.S. job growth soared in the first month of 2023. The unexpected spike in job creation blew past experts' expectations for the start of the new year. In addition, the unemployment rate fell to 3.4%, which is the lowest level in more than 50 years. Federal Reserve raising by 25 basis points to a new range of 4.5 to 4.75. This is the eighth straight hike by the Federal Reserve since March, up by a quarter to 4.5, 4.75. The Federal Reserve sees ongoing increases as appropriate. The Fed is still en route to a level it calls a sufficiently restrictive level of the funds rate. Chatbot ChatGPT is now the fastest growing consumer app in history. It's estimated to have hit 100 million active users in January, just two months after launch. TikTok took nine months to hit that number. Instagram, two and a half years. I think the thing to bear in mind about ChatGPT is that it's extremely good. What it does is give you a pretty solid answer to pretty much any question. And it can also do that in the style of anything you want. So you can ask it to write a song in the style of Taylor Swift or, you know, write an introduction in the style of a TV news presenter. You should be worried because it does it extremely well. The other concern is it doesn't tell you where it's got information from. It presents it all as fact. So it can very easily spout out misinformation that it has found somewhere on the internet and it wouldn't necessarily warn you that it might not be true. A diplomatic row has erupted between the US and China after a balloon was spotted at high altitude in the skies over America, which it says is being used for surveillance. It's led to the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, cancelling a planned trip to China tomorrow. The Chinese have apologised and declared the balloon is used for scientific research and that it could have blown off course. But that hasn't stopped the row from escalating. The fact is, we know that it's a surveillance balloon. We do know that the balloon has violated U.S. airspace and international law, which is unacceptable. This balloon may not represent any significant security threat, but the incident highlights that the growing tension between the two countries now even extends to the skies above rural America. This is the Financial Sense News Hour. Now, here's the Financial Sense News Team. Well, the Fed slows down its pace of rate hikes to a quarter of a point this week, with another quarter of a point expected in March. Next month's rate hike would take the Fed funds rate up to 5%, the highest rate we've seen in more than a decade. Even T-bill rates are rising and getting close to that 5% level as well. Meanwhile, tech giants from Alphabet to Apple disappoint on the earnings front. On Friday, we got a strong jobs number with most of the gains coming from seasonal adjustments. Average hourly earnings fell slightly, but the good news was that the unemployment rate fell to 3.4%. That's the lowest level we've seen in 53 years. Hi, everyone. I'm Jim Poplava, and welcome to the Financial Sense News Hour. Coming up, Mish Schneider from Market Gauge joins me. Mish believes we're close to a market top and a correction is coming soon. Mish is bullish on commodities as we are and believes inflation could surprise the markets by rising again later on this year. Following Mish will be an extended interview with Doomberg as we discuss taking down the energy grid part two. 
why green energy isn't working, why your energy costs are going to be going up and getting more expensive. But first, let's find out what moved the markets this week with Ryan Poplava. The fear of missing out on gains in stocks continues as earnings fall and prices rise as we cap off January and start a new month here in 2023. With the NASDAQ up 14.7%, the Russell 2000 up 12.8%, the S&P 500 up 77 and the Dow Jones Industrial Average up 2.4% year-to-date. The week kicked off on a Tibbin note as uh, bulls crashed in on January gains to end the month ahead of significant economic announcements and a Fed policy decision occurred this week. An article in the Wall Street Journal by Nick Tameros Tuesday suggested based on the employment cost index report, the Fed could pause rate hikes soon. His comments were further confirmed with the Fed statement Wednesday with a quarter point hike instead of a half a point and comments by Chairman Powell that were seen as relaxed and encouraging that the U.S. could get inflation back towards 2% without a significant economic decline. Finally, the ISM non-manufacturing recovery and surge in employment data suggests the U.S. economy is far from economic ruin, but it also has suggested that the projections the Fed could cut rates before the end of the year assume too much. There was some resilience to selling efforts on Friday as a result of the strong employment data, but earnings of disappointments and fears the Fed will pause soon have crept back in to see profit-taking end the week on a sour note. So let's key in here and get into the weeds on some of those key catalysts that occurred this week, starting off with economic results. Uh, the results were seen as either supportive of the Fed pausing or not. The first of which was the pleasing fourth quarter employment cost index results on Tuesday, which were weaker than expected. The report showed that employment costs in the fourth quarter fell 1% from 1.2% in the third quarter. An article, as I mentioned by Nick Tameros in the Wall Street Journal, said the report could increase the likelihood of the Fed pausing rate hikes soon. The employment cost report saw the major averages turn from negative to positive soon after the release of the report. Weakness in the December consumer confidence and the January Chicago PMIs were also attributed in helping support the idea of a Fed pause. The following day, Wednesday, showed a drop in December construction spending down 0.4% and the third consecutive drop in manufacturing activity with the January ISM Manufacturing Index. And that announcement showed the index fell to 47.4, down from 48.4, and inside the report showed the fifth contraction in new orders. Thursday and Friday, things turned around a bit for the economic data as unemployment claims remain low and is seen as supportive of a soft landing. The ISM non-manufacturing services index rebounded significantly from the contraction reading for December. This too is seen as supportive of a soft landing. The employment data, however, has shifted concerns that the Fed may have three hikes in 2023 and is beginning to take off the table the idea for cuts later in the year. January's employment report will either be an anomaly or the stamp of approval on the soft landing argument. Non-farm payrolls rose an astounding 517,000 to beat estimates, while the December figures were revised higher a combined 71,000. The average gain over the past few months was below 250,000 below this report, and the recent readings boost that average up to 350,000 average gains. The unemployment rate ticked down to 3.4%, the only industry decline came from information technology with the majority of industries showing growth, especially in healthcare and leisure and hospitality. 
Average hourly earnings growth was in line with expectations at 0.3% and up 4.4% over the past year. This area hasn't seen the huge inflation numbers we've seen in food and other areas and is encouraging for the Fed to allow a pause in its hikes. Powell has repeatedly targeted his worries over persistent wage inflation, which so far is non-apparent. While this one monthly data report is a significant reversal from previously lower monthly gains, the three-month average of 350000 is still below the average monthly gains we saw a year ago, uh, which were around 515000 The one thing the employment data is not doing is complementing the argument over a hard landing in the economy. There has been no significant signs that the labor market is weakening towards recession here in the first quarter of 2023. What it has done is add another possible rate hike in 2023 with the probability of rate cuts later in the year much lower, according to the CME FedWatch tool. This ended up causing some profit taking to end the week. And so this will be the most important economic indicator to follow later this year as economic uncertainty persists and higher interest rates are here to stay. Turning towards the Fed meeting Wednesday, another key catalyst, the FOMC decision called for a quarter point hike following December's half a point hike. There was some volatility at the beginning of Powell's speech, which highlighted the need for substantially more evidence that inflation is on a sustained downward path and that inflation still remains too high and could become entrenched. But Powell's mood appeared relaxed during the question and answer session, and he made many other conciliatory comments that encourage investors the path to the Fed pausing is soon. Powell said, I still think and continue to think there is a path to getting inflation back down to 2% without a really significant economic decline or significant increase in unemployment. With those comments and seemingly no objection to the current rise in the stock market nor the drop in long-term interest rates suggests the Fed is becoming more comfortable with a soft landing result. Earnings were mixed bag this week. Investors continue to reward companies that highlight cost-cutting efforts despite earnings misses. 50% of companies in the S&P 500 have reported, and 70% of them have been beating earnings estimates, and 61 have been beating revenue estimates. Both are below their respective five-year averages, according to FactSet. Blended earnings for companies that have announced and are still estimated to announce have declined throughout the earnings season and now sit at a negative 5.3% earnings decline. Additionally, analyst estimates for the coming quarter are also now being revised lower. And they typically do start uh, the quarter uh, lower as compared to the 5, 10, 15, and 20-year averages, according to FactSet, which sets up an interesting development come the first quarter earnings season in just a couple of months. Meta Platforms earnings were the epitome of what investors have wanted to see in the tech industry all season. The company announced a much lower operations expense guidance versus the previous quarter and announced a $40 billion stock buyback program. The company was up 23.3% after it announced its earnings report, despite the drop in earnings of 52% and a drop in revenues of 4.5%. Advanced Micro saw solid gains as well, up 12.5% after reporting earnings and revenue surprises that showed the company isn't dealing with the same unknowns as Intel. The CEO, in fact, Lisa Su, said she believed the PC demand weakness may bottom in the first quarter of this year and see growth in the second quarter with the company guiding revenues in line with estimates versus Intel, who lowered their guidance. Apple missed estimates and was tracking a loss on the day uh, following its announcement, but was able to close up with a 2.4% gain. The company similarly had announced cost-cutting plans in hiring and other areas. Amazon, 
Alphabet, Ford, and Starbucks were some of this week's earnings losers with negative reactions to earnings. King in here on Amazon, it was uh, the similar deceleration in cloud computing growth as Microsoft's that bothered investors. Retail operations held up well, especially for essential consumables, but there was a noticeable shift to low-priced items and value brands in other categories, including electronics. DM the week here, it was a catalyst-packed week with earnings from key bellwether tech companies. It was a week of significantly important economic reports, and it was an FOMC policy decision week with a complimentary commentary from Chairman Powell. The soft landing evidence continues to pile up, but Powell continues to keep a close watch on wage inflation and the current tight labor market, which could allow further rate hikes to come if conditions do not ease. But up next, our guest technician for the week, Mish Schneider, and it will be really important as we key away from these economic earnings and FOMC decisions, key in on valuations and market technicals. The super age is a coming period for American society where one out of five people will be over the age of 65. Now, this may not sound like a, a big change in our society, but it's the first time this has ever happened. And the United States is joining a very small club of countries around the world in this new era. For us, we enter in 2030. And this new era will portend a number of unique challenges for us because it's not just the aging of the population that's occurring here with more people over the age of 65. It's just that we're having fewer babies, too. And this will have direct implications for all of the social welfare programs and issues like inflation. To listen to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, go to FinancialSense.com and hit the subscribe button. Are you getting closer to retirement? Do you worry about what retirement will look like? Financial Sense Wealth Management can help put your mind at ease. Our advisors can help customize an individual retirement plan that fits your needs and helps you get on the right track to achieving your retirement goals. We'll show you how to get the most out of your Social Security benefits, make the right decisions on Medicare, reduce taxes, and increase your return on investments so you can relax and enjoy your retirement years. Don't leave your retirement up to chance. Contact Financial Sense Wealth Management today at 888-486-3939 or email us at grow at financial financialsense.com. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. The year is off to a good start. Markets are up. Will this continue? Let's find out as Mish Schneider joins us from MarketGage. Mish, let's talk about the major indexes. The best performing index so far this year has been the NASDAQ, is the tech stocks. Is this simply rotation or is this meaningful? Well, we, we know enough yet to say whether it's meaningful. It's certainly meaningful as far as the January effect and statistically, when you have a very strong January and first week of February, they say that means that they, being the analysts, would say from a technical perspective, that means the market could go much higher. So I would say from looking at the history, it's meaningful, but we don't really know whether that's going to sustain. Because one thing we've learned over the last couple of years, Jim, is that Rules change, definitions change, and there's a lot of square pegs trying to fit into round holes. And so I think the jury is still out on whether or not this is a sustainable rally, uh, even in tech. So that's kind of where I'm at. And, um, and yet, 
price pays, right? So if you've been in the markets and you caught this um, big blast off we've had since the Fed meeting yesterday, my suggestion would be take some profits. And maybe raise a little cash. Let's talk about some of the, it, it almost looks rotational to me. I mean, you had tech doing poorly, financials doing poorly, consumer staples doing poorly. Now, if you take a look at where the S&P is this year, it's like, we're, we're moving into last year's losers. Tech's doing well, finance is doing well, some of the industrials. Any comments? Well, yes. And I think it has to do with the fact that there is this consensus, number one, that was that the market bottomed in October. Um, and that as a result, with a lot of cash that was on the sideline, there was good good amount of people, trillions of dollars, actually, that were looking to get back into the market. The, the, the narrative has been value is back, you know, that and when I say value, fair value in terms of some of these big tech leaders. But I think the real icing on the cake has been, whereas last year there was a tremendous uh, uh, anxiety about how much the Fed would raise the rates, and that's why a lot of these stocks fell so hard, and inflation was going to continue to rise. This year, we've started out with completely the opposite, which is that the Fed, even with the quarter percent, is really basically at a pause, and as you mentioned at the top, potential pivot. And on top of that, there's also the consensus that inflation somehow is peaked. And so this is really where I believe, and I know you know, you and I have been on the same page about this, that I think that consensus might be proven to be very wrong. And so that will certainly take this market into a different direction when that becomes more obvious. Yeah. And some of the things that we do know as the economy slows down, in some of these delayed costs that we've seen, companies are reporting their cost structures have gone up, and they're also missing some of their sales. So if the economy indeed begins to slow down even further, that has got to impact earnings, which I think the street isn't ready for that yet, in my opinion. Well, look what happened, even with Meta and a, and a couple of the other big announcements we've had, is that there's, they're back to huge corporate buybacks of their own stock. And so it's almost like deja vu all over again. Have they learned their lesson yet? And apparently, no. Um, but, you know, I'm looking at under the surface and what I see and feel uh, under the surface is that the same formula that everybody's running in and buying on now with tech and staples, et cetera, is really not going to be a formula that's going to pay off in another couple of months or so. We've got food, we've got Mother Nature, we've got geopolitical situations still very unclear what's going to happen with China, what's going to happen in the Middle East, what's going to happen with Russia. Uh, we have a rising anti-globalist, which could be very inflationary, and we have populism, which also can prove inflationary. And we have these huge strikes going on in UK and in France uh, because people are getting edgy about the fact that their pay raises aren't keeping up with the cost of inflation. So all of this right now is taking a giant pause in the stock market and with the Fed, but I, I don't see anything could happen. But at this point, I don't see uh, peace and calm under the surface. I see freneticism, and that could pop up or what I call spark plugs at any time. Yeah. And speaking of one potential problem, let's talk about energy. The prices come down. OPEC is not going to raise production. We know that companies have not been investing in a lot of drilling. What's the incentive? 
more so they're buying back stock. I mean, just take a look at Exxon buying 50 billion, Chevron 75 billion. And so what about, uh, let's talk about oil uh, because I just have seen a lack of investment over the last decade and sooner or later, that's going to come back to bite us. That's true. And what's so interesting about the oil market is that um, we are holding at around you know $80 a barrel, maybe a little bit lower today as we're speaking. And we do have all these potential, again, use the word spark plugs around, but there are also certain commodities that even with the fundamentals still out there can, from a cyclical standpoint, peak. And that doesn't necessarily mean that if oil peaked, inflation's going away. Because I do believe, and I wrote a whole report on my outlook on 2023, is that we are looking for inflation in all the wrong places. And if we're using oil prices as the pinnacle or the barometer, then perhaps we're being a little bit misguided because A, like you say, oil could be an X factor, number one, anything could happen. And number two is uh, even if cyclically we've sort of reached a top for now, and certainly we've seen that in natural gas, I think what we're seeing around the globe is telling us that there are other issues emerging outside of energy. So clearly, if, if that comes to be a crisis situation again, then we know things will go crazy to the upside in terms of inflation and the Fed will be caught behind, behind the times again. And even if it doesn't do anything much other than just stabilize and demand doesn't come back in any great way, uh, which I doubt also because of China, um, then we still have to look at some of the other places that are creating havoc. And you know, that's why I'm super, super focused on the weather and food and, and social unrest at this point, too, which uh, generally there's the theory of seven monkeys, where if something is happening across the globe, eventually the seventh monkey catches on and mimics it. And, you know, certainly here in the U.S., there is uh, there are problems among the, the division and that division so far people have been complacent about. But you never know. So, you know, you got to look at things technically. But you also have to be prepared in case the shifts because of the fundamentals. Let's move on to the topic of interest rates. We've seen them somewhat stabilize. At least they've come down from their peaks. Where do you see interest rates going from here as you look at the charts? Well, what's so again, right now, I think one of the reasons why Powell spoke, I wouldn't say dovishly, but certainly not particularly hawkishly, is because the Fed funds and the core PCE are pretty much in line with each other. And that is a target that the Fed has, even though they keep talking about the 2% inflation. Um, and so where I think right now is that we could, we could hold here around four and three quarters or even go up to five and a quarter percent. And that, that might be enough to smooth everything out, provided all these other factors behave. So I think though that 4.75, five and a quarter percent Fed funds rate is uh, certainly attractive to a certain level of uh, fixed income. Um, do I think that it means that we're going to go much lower from here? He certainly didn't make that indication. And also, but I don't think that he's going to do what I think he needs to do if, like I said, any of these conditions perk up, which is really push these rates much higher. So we can stay kind of paused here. And that's what the market's liking right now. You know, you made a comment, uh, given what we've seen happen with some of these technologies. 
technology stocks that bounce back in these beaten up sectors that have happened, maybe take some profits. You know, Mish, for the first time, at least for us that are looking for a safe place to remain on the sidelines, investors are finally getting yields. I'm looking at a six-month treasury bill, almost 4.8%. I haven't seen that in over a decade. Yes. And so there are a tremendous amount of people who are putting cash into one year plus CDs to lock in that money. It's still underperforming the rate of inflation at this point, um, but nonetheless, it is a safe place to put your money. And so when people are talking about how underinvested people are in terms of cash still on the sidelines as a very bullish reason, I hope to say in a little bit is that people have gotten smart over the last year and don't necessarily believe the Fed has things under control as much as the Fed would like to believe it does. So, and the governments, I mean, we have so many other things going on right now in the United States, obviously the government spending, the debt has been enormous. There are plenty of people who are going to say to you, well, you know, at that sometime uh, the debt is unsustainable and it's a big bubble, but people have been saying that for years because the debt's been rising for years. I look at it more as just another fuel to the fire as we're heading back into a new election year coming up. And, um, and really, this administration has spent a lot of money, hasn't quite been able to pull off the investments, infrastructure that they've talked about, at least we haven't seen evidence of it. And these tech companies that are routing right now are more AI driven, not necessarily real economic growth, because a lot of this is going to be substitute for real labor when they automate things more. So it's an interesting time. Let's put it that way. Oh, you know, we're seeing things that we haven't seen in quite some time. And I, I guess one of the biggest ones was last year. Typically, when you're in a bear market, the economy's slowing down, you're losing money in stocks, but you're making money in bonds. That did not happen last year. That 60-40 portfolio split, you lost double digits in bonds. Yes. And, I, and actually, let's make one other point about the bond market, because right now the long bonds are outperforming the high-yield, high-debt bonds. So even though high-yield bonds have gone up considerably from the lows, what's interesting to me is when you have high-yield, underperforming long bonds, that's telling you that there's still a sector of the bond market that is preparing itself for maybe some type of recessionary play, and it's just been put on hold for now. Um, I still stick to the stagflation theory, although the labor market is, is sort of proving me wrong. But even the labor market is interesting because you have job openings higher, you have quitting rate flattening, you have wages not really going up necessarily as much as they potentially could. We're shifting. We're going from the fear of great recession to now and tr tremendous enthusiasm that the Fed somehow is going to stop that from happening. And these tech companies can continue to grow. At the same time, we have, again, under the surface, a lot of factors that can go back to showing a recession in the next quarter or even the quarter after that. And then we still have inflation out there. Even though these commodities have come off a little bit as we're talking, they're still really showing relative strength compared to what the indices are doing up until like today, basically. And one thing that really strikes me that the markets may not be anticipating, it's widely expected that inflation rates are coming down, which we've seen them pull back a little bit. 
But what happens mid-year or towards uh, the second half of the year, if all of a sudden commodity prices start picking up and inflation starts going up again, the markets, I don't think, see that scenario. What happens if it does? Well, I'm in the minority of, of thinking that that's exactly what's going to happen right now. I still believe that we have a super cycle coming in commodities. And the more complacent people get about it, the more worried I become of that happening. And clearly, if that does happen, I think the Fed will be in an actually worse spot than they were at the start of 2022 when they thought it was transitory. Now the new thing, the the word transitory is being replaced by, well, inflation has subsided, but we're still watching for it. It's, It's just a new conversation for the same old thing which is their belief that they that these rises in interest rates that they've had, and this is what Powell mentioned, the several 0.75% raises that we had throughout 2022 were enough to wait and see. And then we'll see what happens with the labor market, but they want unemployment to go up. So it's really interesting because I, I, I agree. I think people have really sort of lost the focus on what's happening with the potential for commodities and given everything we mentioned before with climate, with geopolitics, with uh, populism, with anti-globalism, with uh, potential issues continuing with chip wars with China and Middle East and Iran and Israel and everything else, any of these things with oil being the X factor could really spike things. And that will not be good for the equity market because once again, the Fed would be forced to be over aggressive or, or what I call reactive. You know, usually when you have these secular long-term forces, and that's what I see playing out in the commodities market, it's not something that ends in one year. It, that trend tends to continue for longer periods of time. Mish, what would you be telling investors? You, you mentioned early that if you've maybe ridden some of these tech profits, maybe start taking some money off the table, because I think both you and I expect that this looks like a temporary rally rather than the, uh, let's say, the beginning of a new bull market, which I just don't see. There is an interesting moving average that I've been watching very carefully on the monthly chart. It's a two-year moving average or just shy of it. It's a 23-month moving average. And literally, many, many stocks and some of the indices and sectors went down to an 80-month, which is more of a business cycle measurement, held, and now are very close to a 23-month moving average, which is sloping down, which tells me 4,200 in the SPX, I think, could be a top. Um, And so what I think, as far as investments go, I think people have to look for some kind of a correction coming very soon, whether 4,200 becomes 4,000 and that holds a new buy opportunity, we can wait and see. But I think the market looks frothy and I think commodities still look undervalued. I've been waiting for a dip in gold and silver, and perhaps this is the start of one. I think that's a buy opportunity. As you mentioned, I think fixed income is probably not a bad idea. And um, I would look for some of the bleed to stop in some of these defense stocks right now, like Northrop Grumman, which has gone way down. I'm looking for maybe some kind of a bottoming action to happen there uh, to make some investments there just to be protected. Um, And really, when you're getting good yield on cash while this is playing out, rather than having FOMO, maybe sort of sitting aside and see what happens next is not the worst idea. 
Couldn't agree more. Well, listen, Mish, as we close, if our listeners would like to follow the great work you do at Market Gauge, tell them how they could do so. Well, at marketgauge.com right now, if you go to the site, you can get a copy for free of the uh, ebook I wrote on the Outlook for 2023, where I really explain a lot of things we talked about in detail. I write a blog that comes out every day, also available uh, on the website, Mrs. Daly. And if you want to know more about our other companies, we have a RIA, mgamllc.com. And also we're doing some work now in fintech. So we've got a lot going on. So if you just go to our website or my Twitter at Market Minute, and you can ask me questions there, um, that would be a good way to be introduced to uh, what we're doing. Also, I'm on the media a lot. Thank you so much, Jim, for having me on today. But you can also see what my appearances are on national TV. We have a tab there as well uh, on the media. (laughs) Okay. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Always great speaking with you. Uh, Look forward to talking to you again. Are you tired of earning a minimal interest rate on your investments? Are you looking for a higher rate of return on your money? Financial Sense Wealth Management has put together a portfolio of high-dividend-paying blue chips, high-quality interest-paying bonds, and preferred stocks. Our income account portfolio is specifically designed to help meet the needs of retirees, pension funds, and foundations looking to increase income and reduce taxes. To learn more, contact us at 888-486-3939 or email grow at financialsense.com. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. There is some relief. Natural gas prices have come down. Oil prices have come down. But the cost of energy is skyrocketing. We're going to take a look as to reasons why. Joining us on the program is Doomberg. And Doomberg, I want to start out with something. We've got All of these laws are green bills that have been passed through Congress, whether it's the Inflation Reduction Act or this latest bill they passed in December. And the Biden administration is heavily subsidizing electric vehicles. However, the Wall Street Journal reported last Thursday, Interior Secretary walled off much of Minnesota's superior national forest from mining. So even though we're trying to push EVs, we're trying to push green, but we're stopping mining, which leaves us, once again, dependent on China. Yeah. Well, first of all, Jim, great to be here. And this is something we've written about several times, as you know, and we wrote a piece last week called Mission Impossible that makes the case that even if we were approving these mines at the pace that we were capable of approving them, there still wouldn't be enough materials to achieve the electrify everything objective. And don't forget, it's not just that we will electrify transportation. It is also the ambition of the environmental movement that we shall make way for the intermittency of solar and wind onto our grids by backing them up with battery power as well. And when you survey the world for the amount of copper, nickel, cobalt, et cetera, that will be needed to do even a portion of this envisioned transition, you very quickly come to the conclusion that it is impossible to do. We ended that piece, Mission Impossible, with the following sentence. We simply cannot electrify our transportation sector and back up our electricity grid to any meaningful extent using batteries, and therefore we won't. (laughs) And I was laughing yesterday as this picture of President Biden driving around in GM Hummer electric vehicle, which is sort of the ultimate orgy of waste of battery materials, this giant battery pack embedded in this vanity full electric vehicle will do more harm to the environment, undoubtedly, and also comes at the expense of the dozen 
plug-in hybrid vehicles you could probably make from it and the 100 Toyota Prius type soft hybrid vehicles you can make from that same battery pack. And so it is amusing to watch. Battery materials will be the controlling constraint. And it's just a matter of time before everybody realizes it because ultimately you can't just invent nickel, cobalt, and copper out of thin air. It needs to be mined. And if we're not going to mine it, we're not going to have it. And if we're not going to have it, we can't make electric vehicles. And if we can't make electric vehicles, we won't. Yeah, because the goal or the objective of the banana greens is to keep minerals in the ground along with fossil fuels. So if you take a look at mining projects in Minnesota, Arizona, Nevada, Alaska, they're basically stuck in permitting purgatory in the courts. I mean, try to open up a mine, good luck. You're going to get involved in litigation. And the other thing that the journal pointed out, things like nickel extraction and the processes take place in Russia, China, Indonesia, and the Philippines. Now, you wrote a piece, and I wonder if you would explain, just for example, we want to go to wind and solar. Take us through a process of an article you wrote, No Assembly Required, because China has a near monopoly on solar. So thanks for the opportunity to talk about that piece. It's one of our favorite. We published it at the end of 2022. And the title, No Assembly Required, is meant to relay the emphasis that we have here in the West on final assembly of the materials needed to make a solar array, for example. But the vast majority of the actual manufacturing of the materials required to make a solar panel it not only is sort of dominated by China, it's virtually controlled by China. And we were in the solar space competing against these Chinese firms when they, I think, illegally dumped artificially cheap panels all over the world and thereby forced most of the Western manufacturers out of the sector. And so if you think about the journey of a grain of sand as it becomes embedded as you know, solar-grade polysilicon in a solar panel, the first phase of that is the production of polysilicon, which is basically taking sand and an enormous amount of energy and making polysilicon. That polysilicon is then molded into ignits, which are long cylindrical, ultra-pure versions of polysilicon, suitable for the next phase, which is wafering. And then once you go from wafering to cell production, you're beginning to get to the assembly phase, and then you make modules, and then you put them into panels. And today, I'm just looking up the numbers from the piece because we quoted them, China produces 72% of the world's polysilicon, but 98% of the ignits and 97% of the wafers, which means that even for the three remaining polysilicon manufacturers in America today, their polysilicon still gets sent over to China to be formed into ignits, wafers, cells, and modules. And they control those manufacturing choke points. And when it gets sent to China, of course, it gets intermingled with polysilicon produced from areas of the country that we believe are exploiting slave labor. And so it is literally impossible to acquire a solar panel today without having the taint of forced labor having been used at, at critical points in the supply chain. And so unless and until we get serious about reestablishing a manufacturing base in the U.S., not just an assembly facility where we take you know, wafers and assemble them into cells or cells and make them into modules, but actually going back to the beginning of the supply chain using our natural gas and other energy bounties to make polysilicon from sand, and then to actually keep it here domestically to make the ignits and wafers that we need to make solar cells, we won't be serious about it. And in fact, if we focus on the steps further down the chain, the assembly steps, we're only creating more demand for what China controls. And so ultimately, there are some signs that we are beginning to get serious about it, but we have a long way to go. And in fact, it was not but a decade ago where we had Thousands of factories doing just this, but China put them all out of business because they leveraged slave labor, cheap, dirty coal, 
and massive subsidies to state-owned enterprises with the rest of us out of business, including the business that I was a participant in a decade ago. The thing that really strikes me about all of this is if you take a look at all the electronic devices, I'm just thinking of where we were, let's say, 20 years ago. Maybe you had a flip phone. Now you have a smartphone. Now you have an iPad. Now you have an iWatch. You have an iPhone. And that's not counting the laptops, all the other electronic devices that we have. So we're charging those at night. Then throw in, instead of your car parked in the garage, your car is now charging at night. We're placing more and more demands on the electrical system where we retired 12 nuclear power plants since 2013. Another seven are due to get retired here in the next couple of years. We're shutting down coal-fired plants. I think it's like Michigan is going to shut down 42% of theirs. Then on top of that, we're actually reducing the amount of nat gas plants. So we're placing greater demands on the grid. At the same time, we're reducing the reliability of the grid. And you and I have talked about this in the past, but they're projecting uh, more power outs this summer. And of course, California last year, during the heat wave, we were told not to charge your EVs. So this is unsustainable. This will not work. And we've seen some moves back from the ledge, you know, and then, of course, our fantastic regulators at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which should be disbanded, are doing their level best to continue the shutdown of nuclear power. I'm just recently rejecting the Canyon's application for a life extension based on some technicality and forcing the company to resubmit what we both know is meaningless paperwork that won't affect safety or performance in any way, shape, or form. It's literally just the environmentalists have saturated our regulatory agencies and are doing their level best to put up as many barriers as possible to the proliferation of bountiful energy to the masses. And ultimately, politically, even Gavin Newsom saw the writing on the wall that if you take down Diablo Canyon and you lose 10% of the state's electricity production, but more importantly, 20% of its baseload power, the grid collapses. And I would point out, that the please stop charging your electric vehicles call to action came just a week after California announced a further ban of internal combustion engines at some point in the near future, like you can't make it up. And so they're forcing everybody into a solution, quote unquote, um, that they know won't work. So again, politically, change is what's needed at the political level for all of this to sort of correct itself. And it's just a matter of the amount of pain that politicians are willing to put the electorate through before they do their backstepping. And I would point out that we have a situation developing in the Northeast as we record this podcast today. And New England is in the midst of a cold snap. And we'll see how the grid does. If history is any guide, they will be and probably are burning a significant amount of oil to keep the electricity grid going as this cold snap comes in over the weekend. So I'd keep a close eye on New England in the short term. But in the long term, you're right. Our expression here in the chicken coop is that which can't go on forever usually doesn't. And certainly this can't go on forever and something has to give. And we suspect what will give is politics. People who are pro-stupid policies on energy will be voted out of office. And people who are pro-sane policies on energy will be elected into office, whether the bureaucratic and administrative state and the legal courts, which are themselves saturated with environmental progressives, whether they allow the elected officials to make those right decisions and actually implement them remains to be seen. 
Let's talk about two other things that are under assault. Uh, basically, if you own a home, drive a car, or barbecue in your backyard, you're in the crosshairs of the banana greens. And I want to talk about the new idea. They're trying to push us into EVs, electric cars, which we know don't work very well in cold weather. But another issue they're going after is let's talk about the heat pump. <laughs> yes. Our first piece of the year, we made a bold prediction that the words heat pump would be fed to us using the propaganda machine at a scale that few were expecting. And boy, did we both nail that call and we didn't expect that we would be proven so right so quickly. But within days of us publishing a piece on January 3rd titled A Home Near You, we're seeing article after article on attacks on both the home furnace powered by natural gas and even more blatantly attacks on gas stoves. And there was a fascinating article that came out blaming some precise number, I think it was 12% or some silly number like that, of childhood asthma cases on natural gas stoves in the home, which as anybody who has ever used natural gas knows, it's extremely clean burning. You know, yes, if you have a barbecue outside, you would never do that inside, but I have a natural gas stove. It's properly vented. It's perfectly safe to use. And as we just take a step back, this is all part of a coordinated effort to make living in a single family home miserable so fewer people do it. And they're in their envisioned nirvana, we would all be stacked vertically in apartments within walking distance of everything we need and using public transportation in the rare times that we would be permitted to leave our assigned economic zones. It's not going to work. It's not politically popular. It runs 100% counter to the American dream, which is still live and vibrant. And I guarantee most of your listeners would prefer a nicer home than a smaller one and prefer a nice car to public transportation. These are they're signposts of success in a capitalist system. And the culture is not yet ready to part with them, in our view. But this is the intent of the environmental movement. And when you view each of their tactics through that lens of intent, the pattern becomes quite clear. Yeah, because it's not only just natural gas. You use it for cooking. You use it for heating, your water heater. They want to remove that, replace it with the heat pump, get rid of the gas stove, replace it with the electric stove. Can you imagine, Doomberg, how restaurants would function cooking on electric burners in a restaurant? It wouldn't work. It's bad enough that the restaurant industry has been assaulted with whether it was lockdowns and now we're trying to get minimum wage up to 22 here in California. But it seems like it's one thing after another. It's like, we're going to get rid of this. We're going to get rid of this and we're going to replace it with stuff that's less efficient, more costly and put more strain on a grid, which can't sustain it at all. Again. I would say, you know, the allure of home ownership is deeply embedded in the cultural DNA of most Americans. And, you know, the government has, in a bipartisan fashion, it should be said, for decades, done everything it could to encourage people to ascend from living in a dorm in college to sharing an apartment with recent graduates to getting your own apartment to saving up to afford a down payment to getting into your first home. And if you're successful enough, paying off your mortgage and owning it outright and burning your mortgage with your neighbors in celebration. This entire culture in the eyes of the environmentalist has too large a carbon footprint to be sustainable at the population levels that we have today. And so absent their real desire, which is to reduce population levels, they want each of you listening to have less. Now, if they came out and said that overtly and campaigned on it, that would be one thing but they can't do that because they would get routed. And so instead, it's backdoor, it's regulatory, it's judicial, it's outside of Congress. The saturation of the administrative state with environmental radicalists is profound, and it has severe impact on our economy. 
And the quicker people listening realize that this is what's going on and the need to act and to respond and to raise your voice and to call your congressperson and to write letters or in our case, to write a blog that points all this stuff out, the better we'll all be because ultimately I'm personally not ready to give up the dream of home ownership. I would like my children to own homes, get them through college, stand them up and hope they do well. And maybe they'll have families of their own and grandkids, grandkids behind, you know, in the holidays. This is life and they're opposed to life. They're certainly opposed to our way of life. And that's fine. That is their right. We're a democracy. You can be opposed to whatever you want to be opposed to. Just be honest about it. Run on that platform and see how you do with the voting box. Well, that's interesting because San Diego's considering a additional gas tax and a mileage tax. And they said the goal is to move people out of cars into mass transit. So once again, here they are pushing where they're sort of telling you where they ultimately want to go because they know that EVs aren't sustainable given the grid. So we'll just put you on a bus. So I would propose what we would call Doomberg's You First Law. So before such laws are implemented on the population, all politicians must rigorously follow them for one year. <laughs> Just that simple. If you want to put everybody into public transportation, you ride the train to your government paid office. You earn your government salary and your government benefits and your government pension by walking the talk. So you, Mr. Government Overlord, do gooder who knows better than the rest of us, shall be limited to public transportation. And you shall not be allowed to own a vehicle. You must sell your car now, not even an electric vehicle. We won't even make that exception for you. You will lead by example. You will charge the front lines of idiocy and limit yourself to public transportation in San Diego. And last I checked, San Diego's public transportation left a lot to be desired. So unless and until we see politicians following Doomberg's law of you first, it's very difficult to take them seriously. The interesting thing is they rule out gasoline engines in the state of California. They're also doing it with diesel trucks. I just kind of wonder by the year 2030, how we're going to get uh, transport goods into the state. I mean, we already have issues with the truckers here in our own ports that are backed up. And they said they solved the problem. Basically, they're just rerouting freighters. Yeah, move them further offshore so they're not measured as being part of the backup. This is what <laughs> you get. With, well, I mean, that's literally what happened. So this is what you get when you manage to the optics. And look, this is sort of a classic friction in American society today. Most of the food and most of the stuff that people in the cities need is made in flyover country and shipped around the country in the form of diesel trucks. You know, just because you punch buttons on your iPhone and the Amazon delivery person shows up the next day, that stuff comes via diesel and it is made in flyover country. And those who live in the city would say, oh, we pay a higher portion of our taxes and yada, yada, yada. If one cuts off the other, one side can sustain itself and the other cannot. Let's be very clear. I know where I want to live when we're banning diesel trucks, and that's closer to the farms. And let's see how San Diego or California does when the trucks stop rolling. And it, it won't. Again, it won't get to that point, Jim. It, it's just impossible that we as a society would tolerate it. Well, the one thing about it, I mean, we're all for green. We want more wind turbines. We want more solar panels, but you can't build them here. So our utility is building a solar farm in Arizona to ship electricity to California. We're shutting down our power plants but we're our nuke plants, but we're buying nuclear power from Arizona. And as we've been talking about, wind and solar take raw materials. You can't have it. You've got to mine something. But our philosophy is we don't want it mined here where our environmental laws for mining are much cleaner than what, let's say, mining in the Congo or, for example, in China. So it's kind of like out of sight, out of mind. 
So we pretend that we're clean, but we're really not. All the mining is done elsewhere. I'll tell you a story. More than a decade ago, I was also in the wind sector, and epoxy is a critical chemical input into the formation of these wind blades, right? You see them on the highway, these giant long blades. That's mostly epoxy, some carbon fiber reinforcement, a few other cats and dogs. And it became widely known in the chemical industry that China was propping up all of these epoxy chemical plants, stealing intellectual property from the West, but also, most importantly, implementing next to no environmental controls at their epoxy facilities. And I have a distinct memory of talking to a procurement person at a well-known Western firm who I'm sure has a large booth at various you know, global warming conventions like COP27. And we pointed out when they were demanding lower prices because Chinese competitors were bringing online all of this stolen intellectual property-based materials needed to make wind turbines. We said, you know, it's very difficult to compete when your competitor's water treatment plant is a pipeline to the river. And they just looked at us and said, this is the price. If you can't meet it, we're taking away your business. And so despite the veneer of global warming and care for the planet, when push came to shove, all of these well-known brands in the U.S. will knock the knees out of Western manufacturers who have rigorous environmental controls at their production facilities and take a penny a pound less from a supplier in China who they know is dumping toxicity into their local rivers. It's the exact same thing in the solar world. Um, we Again, another major company who I won't name that was putting solar panels all over their warehouses looked at us and said, that's a matter for the courts when we pointed out that they were acquiring solar panels that were built on stolen intellectual property from cheap Chinese manufacturers who were leveraging slave labor and dirty coal to produce them. And so the hypocrisy of it all makes it unsustainable. And these are just anecdotes from my own personal view, of course, my own personal experience that shapes our current views. And, you know, channel checking with our executive friends who remain in the industry, not much has changed, to be totally honest with you. It's kind of a sad story. So I guess how bad does it have to get? I just got a natural gas bill and we keep our thermostats. We shut them down to 65 at night. We don't run them more than 68. I prefer to sleep in cooler temperatures. We just got a $700 bill over $700. And we don't use it that much. I mean, other than heat and the gas stove and the water heater, that's about it. Well, it sounds like you're a man who needs a heat pump. <laughs> <laughs> well, my house is solar powered, but we do have nat gas. Yeah, do you feed that solar into the grid or do you have backup to use it locally? We feed it into the grid, but given the brownouts that are coming here, we're going to have to get batteries. Yeah. So again, you know, your question was, how far do we have to sort of devolve into taking steps back. And I don't know the answer to that. I mean, one of our gifts is that we're early and one of our curses is that we're early. And we're early on a lot of these things, like sometimes by a decade. It was very clear to me more than a decade ago what China was up to in the solar world, and we just let them get away with it. And so it is with sort of a cynical grin that we read the Inflation Reduction Act, where all of a sudden Washington decides, wow, we really need to make manufacturing and build a solar supply chain in the US. We had one a decade ago. We did nothing while China stole it from us and put us in a position where they own 98% of the critical choke points. And so we will spend billions and billions of dollars, waste most of it, grifters will get their cut, trying to rebuild what we already had when you know, an ounce of prevention is, was available to us a decade ago. The industry was screaming loudly to any politician who would hear precisely what was going on, and they did nothing, and here we are. And so it's just a fine mess, no other words to describe it. Do you think gradually they're waking up to this fact? I'm just thinking of what we're doing with chips. So there's sort of like a chip war now between the U.S. and China. 
So you're seeing companies like Intel that are building fab plants here, and we're trying to bring back manufacturing. That's one thing the coronavirus basically showed us is the weakness of our supply chains. Yeah. So we have a slightly different view on ships. Not sure how deep down that hole you want to go. First of all, I would say chip manufacturing is all about the technicians, and that's very, very difficult to replicate, which is why countries like Taiwan have such a firm grip on that critical part of the supply chain. Obviously, design is still pretty pronounced here in the US, and we do a fair bit of it. On chips, we would view the Western fascination with getting ahead of being able to make our own chips as moving the pieces ahead of a potential kinetic conflict with China, which we view as a potential response to China, Saudi Arabia, Russia, perhaps making a coordinated move away from the US dollar. And so the one critical weakness, while there are many critical weaknesses that the US would face if it had a true kinetic conflict with China, undoubtedly, chips would be a significant vulnerability. And so we view the sudden interest in onshoring critical stages of chip manufacturing as driven by the Department of Defense and the need to insulate ourselves from various supply chain weaknesses that we have allowed to occur, where China now controls key aspects of our weaponry production, for example. Magnesium is just one example, where we used to have the world's largest magnesium plant on the Gulf of Mexico, south of Houston, and that's been shut down now. And most of the magnesium in the world is made in China, which means if China decided to stop the exportation of magnesium, we would have to shut auto assembly factories around the world because you can't have reinforced aluminum without magnesium. And then on it goes. But I view chips as sort of the top of the list of vulnerabilities and our sudden interest in onshoring them has more to do with anticipated military and geopolitical responses to the move away from the US dollar more than any economic motivations that we might have over here. So as we move forward and as people start experiencing either higher natural gas prices, higher utility, our utility rates here in California are just outrageous compared to elsewhere. It eventually, you know, I'm just thinking of your average guy that has to buy gasoline, has to pay his utility bill. I mean, this is really squeezing people, and they claim that green is cheaper when it really isn't. I will say that natural gas prices in the U.S. have come down substantially from the highs that we saw earlier this summer. And that's in large part because it has been very unseasonably warm in Europe, which has diminished the need for them to acquire you know, liquefied natural gas from the international markets. And it has been pretty warm here in the U.S., and the desire to produce more oil comes with it a lot more associated natural gas. And so natural gas today has come down to pretty much where it was before COVID. And we should begin to see that reflected in prices for home heating and so on, which is a wonderful thing. But we should not confuse you know, the whims of Gaia and luckily having a warm winter with an endorsement of the policy that put us at risk in the first place. You know what really surprises me? You know, we're pushing EVs when we really should be pushing hybrids because everybody knows batteries don't work well in cold weather. A Tesla doesn't get much mileage in, let's say, Detroit, Michigan or Fargo, North Dakota. Yeah. And we've argued that if batteries are the constraining parameter, we should manage to that constraint. And if you take 80 kilowatt hour battery pack that you would find in a Tesla and you divide it by four and you make four plug-in hybrid vehicles that still have an engine as backup, you might abate 90% of people's fossil fuel usage across four people, as opposed to 100% of somebody's fossil fuel usage in a full battery electric vehicle. And four times 90 is 360, which I can guess is 3.6 times better than one. And that we don't do that, and that we are insistent on focusing on full BEVs, as opposed to getting the most amount of gasoline abatement we can get 
for the limited amount of battery materials that we have tells us, at least, that we're very unserious. And that picture of Biden in a giant Hummer, which is not going to be part of any environmental solution, tells us all that we need to know. They either don't understand that batteries are a constraint yet, or they do, and they know that they're not serious. Well, the thing that would surprise me would be the auto manufacturers. As we talked about, China has a lockdown, almost a monopoly on all aspects of green. So if you were an auto dealer and you were having problems getting chips, what about when you're going to have problems getting batteries? Well, there's just not enough. So eventually, I mean, again, if you just look at the price of lithium and the price of nickel in the past two years, they've gone through the roof. And by the way, you mentioned earlier, you know, we have laptops and we have cell phones and we have devices. All of those devices use the exact same supply chain that solar does. Like it's polysilicon to ignits to wafers. That's where the chips come from. And in fact, the purity levels demanded by semiconductor production are at even a higher level than what's needed for solar. But they all share the same supply chain. The batteries in your iPhone contain cobalt that is mined by child labor in the Congo. This is all widely known. Like Congo has something like 70, 80% of the world's cobalt reserves. They call them like one of the worst words, the, the greatest turns of phrase from a propagandist ever invented were the words artisanal miners. Do you know what the word artisanal miner actually means? It means a child using physical labor to get your cobalt out of the ground in the Congo so that you can have a cheap iPhone. That's what artisanal mining is, child labor. Can you imagine a word sounding more innocent and more soft and more fluffy than artisanal mining? And the contrast to the dirty, hard physical labor that children are doing in the Congo. And the world knows this. There was a person who was on the Joe Rogan podcast and that kind of went viral, which kind of surprised us. Like, we just assumed everybody knew this. Like, every single apple in the world contains cobalt mined by children and is assembled in what we, again, another great propagandist turn of phrase, we call iPhone cities which look mysteriously a lot like camps and which really kind of resemble forced labor camps. And yet, because we call them iPhone cities, we allow ourselves to believe that somehow this is all okay. Like This is the, the pursuit of low cost. We have defaulted on our ethics. And we should all know that. We should be forced to look at it. We should be forced to stare down these choices. There are no solutions to life. There are only trade-offs. If we're all okay with China using slave labor, and the Congo using child labor to make the devices that make our life slightly easier, then that's fine. But let's at least admit it. Like, let's look at it. And if we're not okay with it, then let's get serious about using physics as our guide to do something about it. Well, let's break this down to investments. We're very bullish on commodities, whether they're pushing green, whether it's EVs, solar, wind, whatever it is, it takes raw materials. So we love the energy sector, oil and gas. We like the mining companies. We like the precious metals companies. So from an investment perspective, what's your view? It's funny, you know, we like to say we don't invest in public markets. Mostly we invest privately where we can affect the outcome. But the piece of home near you, where we went into the heat pump stuff, we did actually point out who would be making a lot of money. And one of them might surprise you. And that is HVAC companies. Because these heat pumps are basically air conditioning units that can also run in reverse. And so they can heat your home as well as cool it. And those units have refrigerants and they require technicians. And private equity has been moving into the HVAC sector with reckless abandon almost. And we quoted in the piece, a good friend of ours is in the space and got there before everyone else. And so he's doing quite well. HVAC companies are trading at like 18 times EBITDA in the private market. It's a mania. If you have a young child who's thinking about getting a liberal arts degree or going into a trade where they might become a furnace repair technician, that would be a wonderful thing for them to learn how to do because they're going to be in significant demand. 
as we force ourselves to do these crazy things, it's interesting to think about the second and third order winners and how to position yourself accordingly. We think refrigerants are going to be a big deal. These refrigerants are highly specialized and refrigerant recyclers in particular are going to make a lot of money. And so we look for those second and third order impacts. And in particular, we look where we can invest privately, get ahead of those trends, because it can be a little bit easier to make significant alpha when you know the management team and you can help them succeed. So given all the information we've been discussing here on the program and what you guys are writing about, what would you suggest our listeners do? Because a lot of the stuff you and I are covering, you're not going to find it in the mainstream news. It's all happy talk. It's all green talk. We're moving to a greener economy. We're going to prevent a climate disaster. You don't hear that, the kind of stuff that we're talking about. What would you recommend? Yeah, I would recommend that the very first thing is personal sort of sovereignty begins in the home. And we are unashamed to say that we have a preparedness mindset. We are aware of the grid vulnerabilities and we have invested in our dwellings to build in some robustness at the home. And if the home front is taken care of, then you could go to the next layer out, which is protect your current assets. And once those current assets are hedged against this insanity, then the third and last thing would be, okay, well, how do I invest and profit from these trends, whether or not I agree with them? But starting at home, we think is critically important. We have plans for losing power, losing water, losing natural gas, what we would do, how much food do we have? We think of our home as a factory and the product of our factory is the health and well-being of our family. And since the modern sort of supply chains are cutting back on working capital, we have to increase the amount of working capital we have in our home. So, you know, we have excess food. We're not hoarders, but we have many weeks of food that we can rely on. If the grocery stores were suddenly empty, we have backup power options for our home. If the electricity grid goes out, as it will, as you have correctly anticipated. And so I would say get your house in order first, which is a great expression, and then begin to move outward. Get your house in order, protect your current assets. And then and only then should you be thinking about how should I position my investment portfolio to make a win on this? It's, it does you no good to have an investment portfolio that's growing rapidly, basically electrons on a screen, if you can't feed and take care of your family because of some social unrest that results from the trends you correctly predicted when you made your investments. So we operate big to small, take care of the local, then go out of the next circle, and then go out of the next circle after that. Very wise advice because, like I said, our house is solar powered. We've even added more panels onto the house as they change the way they price electricity here. And our next step is probably going to have batteries and maybe a nat gas generator just in case. So I could tell you what we do just for those who are interested in the tactics because it's one of my passions. And so I'm always happy to talk about it. So we have a whole house natural gas power generator as sort of first layer of backup. And we have beyond that, uh, here's a little trick for people. You want to get electric generators that are powered by propane as your backup to that. Because when a hurricane hits or there's some crisis, people rush to the gas station, but the hardware store has lots of propane tanks. And we run our traditional gasoline power generators off of propane. And then you can invest in what are known as solar generators, which are basically giant battery packs that come with custom-made solar panels. You know, Our view would be that we would sort of keep our fridges running at night with a solar generator that's quiet, and then we would recharge them during the day with our propane power generators, which are a little bit louder, but that's okay during the day. And so you could go down the rabbit hole here on preparedness, but it is a fascinating challenge of if I lost electricity for two weeks, what would I do? Because it's going to happen. And when it happens, you don't want to be caught unaware. You want to be confronting the crisis from a position of strength and preparedness. And let's talk about food too, because we saw that basically during the pandemic. I mean, we had to run on toilet paper, paper towels, things like that. Uh, there's a shortage of you know, baby formula. 
So, and I've noticed even going to the grocery stores, since I do the shopping, sometimes you'll go down an aisle and on the shelves, there's empty space. So there's things missing. Yeah, I would never trust the just-in-time inventory of the food supply chain. I would never trust my family's well-being to that wholeheartedly. So a very simple thing you could do is increase the working capital of your pantry. So it's very important that you store what you eat and eat what you store. So if you store a bunch of stuff that your family's never eaten, that would be impalatable in a time of crisis, that's only going to raise the anxiety. So first thing you could do is just double or triple the size of your pantry, buy more of what you eat routinely, rotate it, keep it relatively fresh. Then there's the ultimate sort of set it and forget it trade, which is, you know, mountain house type camping, hiking food. This stuff has a 40-year shelf life, tastes pretty good actually. I would go and buy some and try them before buying a bunch of it. But you could drop a couple thousand dollars on mountain house emergency supply food and just sort of put it in a nice cool place where nobody can see it and have 30, 40, 50, 60 days of food if you truly needed it, always there at the ready. You know, it's a fascinating thing. So we all pay a relatively healthy amount of home insurance policy every year, right? But I don't know, let's just imagine you're paying $100 a month for home insurance, $1,200 a year. When the year is up, you're not bemoaning the fact that your house didn't burn down. You paid your $1,200, the house didn't burn down. But if it did, you'd be glad you were paid up. It's the same with food. If you drop $1,200 on Mountain House or $2,400 on Mountain House and just put it in a nice cool place in your basement and never think about it again, if you never end up having to use it, great. That's the whole point of insurance is to have it there when you need it. And heaven forbid, you actually do need it. But if it did come to pass, where we had a diesel shortage or a trucker strike and our grocery stores were ripped bare within hours because that's what happens in a crisis, you could rest comfortably knowing that in your basement, you have 30, 40, 50, 60 days worth of pretty reasonable food with a 40-year shelf life that you've already paid for. But we don't do that. And in fact, there's this weird sort of frowning upon sort of prepper movement that's somehow unpatriotic or weird or right-wing or alt. It's none of those things. It's you love your family, you have some resources, and you're willing to pay insurance, and you don't expect to ever have to cash in on that policy. And in fact, it would be a devastating thing for me to resort to having to use the mountain house that I have stored in my home, but I'd be sure damn glad I have it. And what about growing food? I mean, we all heard stories during World War II, Victory Garden. So what if you have a little patch of land on your house? You know, you might want to consider growing things. Yeah, that to us, that's a little less realistic just because of the volume and people stealing it. It's outside. It's very difficult to protect. You know, you could boil some water and have meals for your family indoors without anybody knowing it in a time of a true crisis. I'm all for micro gardens and people learning how food is grown, if for no other reason than to understand the visceral connection to the land that we've all lost. But as a prepper policy, that's pretty low on our list. All right. And another way they can stay informed, why don't you tell uh, individuals about your Substack, one of the fastest growing newsletters on Substack. Appreciate the opportunity. And again, always a pleasure to talk to you guys and happy to come back anytime you'll have us. But yeah, all of our writing can be found at doomberg.substack.com. And since we last appeared on your show, we have grown to become the number one finance Substack in the world, which is amazing and thrilling and humbling and life-altering all in one breath and we couldn't be more thrilled. We are 100% subscriber supported, which means that we take no advertising and accept no sponsorships. And we like to say there's nothing wrong with those business models, but given the provocative nature of many of the pieces we write, we thought it was critically important that we maintain 100% editorial control over all of our pieces. As I said, doomberg.substack.com, six to eight pieces a month. It's the work of our lives. 
We're thrilled to be doing it and thrilled to be here today with you, Jim, and always happy to come back. All right. Well, it was great having you on the program. All the best and hope to talk to you again. That concludes our weekend edition of the Financial Sense News Hour. To speak with our financial planning and wealth management team, give us a call at 888-486-3939 or go to financialsense.com and click where it says Contact Us. If you aren't already a subscriber to our weekday podcast and would like to listen to more of our content where we regularly interview book authors, industry experts, and strategists from around the globe, go to Financial Sense and hit the subscribe button. On behalf of Financial Sense NewsHour and the Financial Sense Wealth Management Team, we hope you have a pleasant weekend. Financial Sense News Hour is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the News Hour each involve their own unique risk factors, which are not discussed on the show. Responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the Financial Sense staff and do not take into account listener suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Financial Sense News Hour and its parent company shall not be liable for any financial losses that result from investing in any company. Companies mentioned in Financial Sense or arising out of the use of any material on the news hour. Be advised that you invest at your own risk.